You're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 to 20. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace through the blood of his cross. This is the word of the Lord. Let me pray as we get into God's word. Father, we thank you for the chance to study your word tonight. We thank you that you have a message for us. We ask that uh, you might be clear and that we might listen and respond. We ask that we might come to understand who Jesus is, what he's done, and how to respond to him. In Jesus' name, amen. It's pitch dark in a way you can only get in the bush as I arrive at the property of a man I met an hour ago. This is my base, he says. I've got everything you need. I take this the way city people say it, where I have everything means Bunnings has everything, but peering through the darkness, I realise he means it. There's chickens, a massive veggie garden, solar panels and septic tanks. And then I ask, what's in the basement? And he says, six months of fuel and some basic weapons. Weapons? Yeah, just basic ones. The writer of this article, the ABC journalist Annika Blau, had just met a prepper someone who is prepared for a full-scale global disaster, the apocalypse. Doomsday prepping, also known as survivalism, is becoming increasingly popular uh, throughout places like the US, the UK, and here in Australia. Uh, Apparently, most doomsday preppers are middle class and highly educated. It's actually become incredibly popular among Silicon Valley billionaires. Uh, In fact, in 2017, the co-founder of LinkedIn, said that as many as half of the billionaires that he knew had become preppers. These people often speak of the event, something that will happen that will end society as we know it. Perhaps an environmental uh, catastrophe, a a nuclear explosion, a, a solar storm, something that destroys society as we know it. Perhaps a computer hack that short circuits all of our technology. Y2K, but it actually happens. In preparation, they stockpile enormous amounts of supplies and, where possible, uh, try to develop disaster-proof accommodation in the most remote parts of the world. So uh, you can find Cold War-era hangars in America's Midwest or also uh, property down in in New Zealand at the bottom of the world where people have set up camp. And some of these places are remarkably well-equipped. The Vivos Group have uh, set up a community of 575 bunkers in South Dakota, which could uh, pro- uh, provide accommodation for as many as 5,000 people 
in a former army munitions site. And some of these places are incredibly fancy as well. Uh, the survival, uh, the group survival condos advertises that a, a 167 square metre condominium that has three bedrooms, two bathrooms and luxury finishes, all for uh, $3 million US. And then there's shared facilities such as a bar, a pool, a spa, an indoor shooting range. Now, I don't know what you make of all this kind of stuff. I won't lie. I'm starting to look at canned goods in a different way. But there's something fascinating here that I just want to highlight, and that is the fear of things falling apart. You see, our society functions pretty well, doesn't it? When I get up, there's water running in the taps so I can have a shower. I walk downstairs, the electricity's working so I can make myself a coffee. Make, put some toast on. There's petrol at the petrol station so I can fill up my car, drive to work or drive to the station. Everything is pretty much in place and it's working as it's supposed to. But what if it didn't work one day? What if everything fell apart? This is a fear that some people have, but I actually suspect that it's actually lurking not far under the surface for many of us, not just a few. Perhaps that explains why there's so much popularity in, in dystopian post-apocalyptic movies. Just think things like Mad Max or The Children of Men or The Day After Tomorrow. Even the superhero movies play on this, I think. I don't really watch the Marvel movies, but whenever I see a bit of it, things don't seem to be going well. Society <laughs> seems to be falling apart. All sorts of things are happening. Of course, this is the realm of fantasy, but then when something does actually go wrong, it's amazing how quickly things degenerate, how quick we are to panic. Just think of how strange it was in March 2020 when uh, all the lockdowns began and you couldn't find toilet paper. I was just saying to someone before the service, I remember about 25 years ago, uh, there was a footy game at Waverley Park, the lights went out, and within 30 minutes, people were putting on bonfires on the field. Like, it doesn't take much for things to fall apart. I mean, it was a St Kilda game, so you can understand. But And then think about what the future holds for us. Every week, we seem to hear another prediction, of a dire prediction of what's going to happen in terms of climate change. And then the political realm is in flux. We see a war in the Ukraine. As the experts tell us that it's very possible that there'll be uh, a war with China within the next 10 years. The Australian newspaper just yesterday had a headline, The Shadows of Armageddon, talking about nuclear bombs. And in the context of all of this, as one writer puts it, the survival retreat starts to seem like an eccentric but understandable reaction. See, there is reason for us to fear. There is reason for us to feel like our world is fragile and uncertain, that things really could fall apart. And this has really been the, the story of humanity right through history. The ancients used to worry that the cosmos would just disintegrate suddenly. And when you look through history, in every era, there's wars, there's pestilence, there's plagues. And in fact, our own moment is a strangely stable time in human history. And so in the midst of all of this, it makes sense for people to worry, and yet tonight we find a great encouragement in the words of Colossians 1, that there is someone who's holding it all together. Verse 17, Jesus is before all things, and in him all things hold together. 
Uh, Jesus is before all things. As we've seen over the last couple of weeks, that means that he is God and he is the creator. All things were made through him and for him. He has that power. And now we learn tonight that the things that he creates, he also sustains. He keeps them together. In some profound sense, Jesus keeps the cosmos alive and upright. And without his constant presence, everything would fall apart. David Garland writes, Christ is a kind of divine glue or a spiritual gravity that holds creation together. Another writer says he keeps the cosmos from becoming a chaos. Or as we read in Hebrews 1, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. That everything is here today because of Jesus keeping it together. Now, if you're anything like me, this is probably not something that you think about that often. It's likely that we kind of just figure God makes the world and then it just sort of carries on until it finishes. And yet the Bible points to God, to Jesus, having a direct, decisive and ongoing influence maintaining creation as it is. As the writer James Rigney explains, not only did God create the world from nothing in the beginning, he also sustains it from nothing at every point of its existence. So, so there's nothing in the beginning. He, he makes something and unless he keeps it going, it will fall back into nothing. As Nehemiah 9 puts it, you have made heaven, the heaven of heavens, of all their hosts, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them, and you preserve all of them. You keep them going. As R. Kent Hughes put it, puts it, apart from his continuous activity, all would disintegrate. This is a strange thought, but one that is fascinating and I think beautiful. I read an amazing quote from Jonathan Eberts. He was from the 1700s and he writes, this is a long quote, but it's just a beautiful quote. He writes, God is present everywhere and in the continual exercise of his infinite power and wisdom throughout the whole creation. Every moment takes a continual act of infinite power to uphold things in their being. So when we look upon anything that we can behold, we see the present operation of infinite power. The same thing, the same power that made those things in the first place is keeping them together. So when we look at the sun, the moon and the stars above or look upon the earth or things below, if we look so much as upon the stones or under them, we see infinite power now in exercise at that place. If we look upon ourselves and see our hands or our feet, these members have an existence now because God is there and by an act of infinite power upholds them. So everything around us, the sky, the trees, our bodies, this pew, the rest of this building, is being held up right now by God's power. In fact, if you look around this building, probably a lot of God's power is holding this place up. It is his infinite power right now. We are in the presence of God and his active power. It's an extraordinary thought and I think a beautiful one and I want to suggest a few reasons why. 
what, what the implications are for this, how this can actually affect our daily life. The first thing is this means that Jesus, our creator, is near, is close to us. This is something that has long been doubted by people. In the 17th and 18th century, there was a, a theological movement called deism, which basically taught that God was quite disconnected from his world. He kind of established the world, set it spinning, and then just kind of left it going. He, he was often pictured as a blind watchmaker, kind of wound up the earth like a clock, set it down, and then went away, and then would come back when the alarm went off and it was time to finish it all up. But in between, he's kind of disconnected from his creation. And in some ways, we still hear that kind of idea around us. If you're middle-aged like me, you might remember Bette Midler sang a song in the 80s or 90s called and, and From a Distance. And she said, God is watching us from a distance. The idea being that God is far away from us, either because he's not powerful enough to intervene in the world or he's not interested. But when we see this passage, we see that that's not true. God is present. God is close. He is sustaining his world. He's near to us. In fact, in the best and most beautiful way possible, you could say that Jesus is a micromanager. He's constantly making sure that everything is in place. So, for instance, he's in charge of the weather. Psalm 135, he it is who makes the clouds rise at the end of the earth, who makes lightnings for the rain and brings forth the wind from his storehouses. I feel like he does a lot of work here in Melbourne. He's constantly changing. He's constantly doing strange things here. Also, he, we're told in Scripture that he places the stars in space and then directs them on their paths, Isaiah 40. Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. He who brings out their hosts by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might, and because he's strong in power, not one is missing. You sort of have this picture of, of God uh, naming all of the stars of the cosmos and then putting them in place and making sure they're in the right place and then directing them on their path and, and kind of calling them to himself. Come, come on, Orion, over here. You know, that's what God is like. But it's not just the mighty things of the cosmos that he's involved with, it's the small things as well. In Matthew 10, Jesus says, Are not two sparrows sold for a penny, and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father? I mean, the sparrows were worth nothing, two for a penny. And yet God knows about every single sparrow. He knows about every little small thing. We're told he knows the hairs, the number of hairs on our heads. He's that close. Is that close to everything that he creates? As Rigney concludes, the scriptures make clear from Genesis to Revelation, from top to bottom and front to back, that God rules, reigns, governs and ordains all things. And I think this is a sign of Jesus' love for his creation. Now, last week when we were thinking about Jesus as creator, we thought about how uh, he loves to create, he enjoys it, and then he loves the things that he creates. He loves us because he, he, he cherishes us. We're, we're valuable enough to him that he would handcraft us. And because of that, he sustains us. He remains close to the things that he creates. 
So if Jesus, Jesus sustains all things, that means he's close. And then secondly, it means that we need him. We need our creator. It's easy for us to imagine that we're self-sufficient, that our lives are because of us. The things that we can do are because we have the power, the strength, the abilities. We make our own world, our own lives. But again, the scripture, uh, the testimony of scripture proves otherwise. There is a sense in which God has written self-sufficiency into the world. He, he creates plants that have seeds within them, which then can create the next tree. It's the same with humanity. We have the seed within us of the next generation. And yet in all of this, God is at work sustaining all things. Psalm 104, verse 10, you make springs gush forth in the valleys. They flow between the hills. They give drink to every beast of the field. The wild donkeys quench their thirst. Beside them, the birds of the heavens dwell. They sing among the branches. So, so God has set up this world that we can use and enjoy, but he is the one who sends the water that then feeds the trees that give us the seeds and the fruit. In fact, in verse 16, we're told that the trees of the Lord are watered abundantly. This, this image of, of God on his front lawn watering everything, making sure that it's all provided for and it's all sustained. And so we're told in verse 13 that the earth is satisfied with the fruit of his work. And so in a very real sense, we can say that all things depend on God for life every day that without his sovereign care, we would be destitute. Psalm 104 verse 27, everything looks to you to give them their food in due season. When you give it to them, they gather it up. When you open their hand, they're filled with good things. When you hide your face, they are dismayed. When you take away their breath, they die and return to their dust. You renew the face of the ground. Each of us is being provided for by God every day. And it's important for us to remember that because, as I say, we can easily imagine that we are self-sufficient and, and so we need to be humble. And I think God is constantly trying to remind us of our need for him. Just think about when a celebrity suddenly dies, Shane Warne, Kobe Bryant, or someone further back like Princess Diana. It's always so shocking to us. But it's also very revealing. See, see, why is it so shocking? Why are we so surprised and horrified by it? I think partly it's because they're often young. They feel impregnable because they're young. Perhaps it's because they're rich. We kind of imagine that because of their wealth, they have the best medical care and all of those things, but there's no way you can immunise yourself against the car crash. But I actually suspect there's something else underneath it. It's because they're famous and in some way, we're so used to seeing them, they're omnipresent all around us on TV and in the media, that somehow we've kind of elevated them above humanity, and perhaps we even have begun to idolise them. They're a kind of God. And so we're surprised that even they can't sustain themselves. But they need God too. All of us have life only as long as God allows it. And at any moment, it can be taken away. And so we need to respond in humility. I'm sure, like me, you like to make 
lots of plans, big plans about the future, who you might want to marry, where you might want to live, what kind of things you might like to do, how you're going to live your life. And then you make short plans. What are you going to have for breakfast? Who are you going to see today? What are you going to do at work? Whatever it is, short plans about today, tomorrow. And if you're like me, you probably think and speak about these plans with a great deal of confidence. This is what I intend to do. I assume that this will happen. But do we remember that these things will only happen if God allows them to happen, if he sustains us? Proverbs 19, many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. And so we should, we should humble ourselves within that. James 4, come now, you who say today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. You do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Like, we're, we're really not that uh, impressive. We're not that strong. We depend on God. And so instead you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. And so it's actually a really helpful discipline for us to, to think and make our plans in light of God's will. Uh, this is actually something that was very popular among Christians maybe 50, 100 years ago. You'd often hear people say something like, oh, I'm planning to do this, Lord willing. In fact, there was even an acronym, DV, Dio Valente, Lord willing. And so you'd kind of say, look, I, I hope to do this, but it's in God's hands. There's actually something really useful about that, reminding ourselves that we depend on God, that we are sustained purely by God. It's a good discipline. But also I think it's designed to comfort us because here's the third thing. The fact that the world is upheld by Jesus means that ultimately Jesus is in control. He's in control of all things. He's in control of the elements, he's in control of the authorities and of history itself. First of all, Jesus is in control of the elements. He's the Lord of creation who created everything around us and so he can move and control them and, and even overturn the laws of nature because he has written them in the first place. Perhaps the best example of this is when he calmed the storm in Mark 5. Uh, you might know the, the situation uh, Jesus has been preaching and teaching the people. He might even say he's been preaching up a storm. And at the end of the day, he decides that he needs to sail across the sea. And so he heads off in this boat with his disciples. And then this massive storm blows up. And even his disciples, who are hardened fishermen, they're great sailors, even they're terrified. But Jesus is asleep in the boat. And so they're so anxious and they wake him up. Lord, Lord, help us. Save us. And we're told in verse 39, he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. It's extraordinary. He rebukes the wind. It's like, fellas, calm down. You know, like, waves, you need to stop. And we're told that the disciples were, were afraid, not because they're afraid of him, they're terrified of who he is. I think they... They have a sense of awe. Who is this, they say, that even the wind and the sea obey him? 
See, in that moment, they sense that they are in the presence of God himself because only God has this kind of power. Only God can control the elements. So Jesus is in control of the elements and he's also in control of all authorities. In Colossians 1.16, Paul says that uh, Christ is uh, the creator of all things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. As I said last week, when he talks about thrones and dominions and so on, it's probably a reference to spiritual authorities that Jesus is above, but it's also human authorities. It can be any authority because he created all of these things and so he's above them. He can control them. I don't know if you ever play board games, but I love it when you're playing something like Risk or Settlers of Catan, that, that bit where you, you're putting all your pieces on the board and then you just move them around to create your world the way that you want it to be, your empires. That's what Jesus is like. Isaiah 40, it is he who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. He can just control the whole thing. And so he's in control of governments. Romans 13 says that there's no authority except from God. Those that exist have been instituted by God. He put them in place. He can control their minds and hearts. Proverbs 21, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. And ultimately, they're part of his greater plans for empires. Daniel 2, he changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. And then he's above the spiritual realm. He's in control of everything visible and invisible. He's far above all of these powers. Jesus is in control of all of this. And he wants us to know that we can trust him in that. As Christians, or just as people in the world, it's easy for us to feel anxious, to see tensions emerge among nations, to hear rumours of wars, or to see opposition against God's people. And it's easy for us to fret and to panic, to wonder if this is all out of control. But it never is. Jesus is always in control. And ultimately, he is working to fulfill his purposes because he is in control, not just of the elements, not just of the authorities, but in control of history itself. Uh, last year, I read an amazing book called 1983, not 1984, 1983, uh, The World at the Brink. It's by an historian called Taylor Downing, and it tells the hidden story of the Cold War, revealing just how terrifyingly close we came to nuclear war. Uh, what's scariest is how many tiny things went wrong that could have been absolutely disastrous. So, for instance, during the Cuban Missile Crisis in 1962, uh, everyone was on high alert and there was a, an air base in Duluth, Minnesota. And one of the sentries on guard saw an intruder coming over the fence, sounded the alarm for the intruder. This gets passed on to some other bases further along the line. But along the line, somewhere, someone pressed the wrong button 
and they raised the alarm saying that we are under attack, that there are missiles, nuclear bombs heading towards us right now. Now, the protocols at this point uh, was that as soon as there was missiles fired at you, that you would respond. Both sides, it was called mutually assured destruction, MAD, MAD. The idea was that you had a, just a, a matter of minutes to respond. And so straight away, the Americans uh, send their planes, they're, they're ready to go, they're taxiing on the runway, about to take their nuclear payload. And then someone realises the mistake and they're stopped. And then they worked out that the intruder was actually just a grizzly bear. It's extraordinary. But the story that kind of uh, stuck out the most for me was one about Lieutenant Colonel Stanislav Petrov of the Soviet Army on the night of September the 26th, 1983. Petrov was in position that night at Serpikov 15, the Russian command centre. He was a software engineer, but like the other senior officers, once a month he would be rostered on to kind of sit in the command centre and make sure that he knew and understood what was happening. Like most shifts, this night was looking fairly normal until just after midnight. An alarm rang out with a message saying, launch, launch, launch. He believed that the alarm was saying that there was a missile coming towards them, so they needed to respond. He didn't trust it at first, so he turned off all the computers, as you do when something goes wrong, just switch it off. Turned it back on, but the alarm was still going. Tried it again. The alarm was still going a third time. At this point, he describes feeling paralysed by fear. He couldn't feel his legs. He, was, he said it was like he was in a frying pan. He was so sweaty and, and terrified of what was going to happen. He knew what he was supposed to do and they didn't have much time. But, as I said, he was a software engineer and he'd helped set up this computer and he knew how often it would get things wrong. And so he held firm. And then they realised that what had actually happened was as the sun was going up in the other part of the world, an infrared uh, light had been picked up and it wasn't a missile at all. It was just the rays of the sun. And so he was right to not say launch the missiles and he ended up getting an award from the United Nations for basically saving the planet. Like you can go to his house and there's this little statue on top of his TV that says, thank you for saving humanity. And when I hear stories like that, I sense the God who is in control of history, protecting us from the madness, the mutually assured destruction of human hearts. See, what if Petrov hadn't been on duty that night? Or what if he had been and he wasn't a software engineer who, didn't, who knew all of these things? Or what if he'd, he'd just followed all the protocols? And, you know, the only reason he was on that night was because someone else had called in sick. In all of that, we see a God who is in control of all things, in control of history itself and fulfilling his purposes. That's what we're told in Isaiah 46. I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning. And from ancient times, things not yet done, saying my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. As David Garland puts it, a gracious and loving God will determine our destiny, not capricious and fluky chance. God is in control. 
Now, of course, some of you might be asking, well, if God is in control, then why does he allow any of these weird things to happen? If he's in control of the elements, why does he allow flood and fire? If he's in control of the authorities, why does he allow evil leaders to emerge? If he's in control of history, then why is history full of so much sadness? If he can uh, tear people down, why would he raise them up in the first place? It's a great question, very complex one, and one that we could spend hours talking about. But let me just offer tonight the idea that if Jesus is in control of all things and he is a a creator who loves us, who wants to be close to his creation, who cares about even the sparrows and every hair on your head, then he is in control even of this and he can even be working through things that seem so bad. This, again, is something we're told throughout the Bible. In Genesis, we're told about uh, Joseph. You might remember the story. He's sold by his brothers into slavery in Egypt. Ends up, he's close to death, but he ends up being raised up to be the prime minister, prepares the world for an enormous famine, saves many lives. And then when he's, his brothers, he reconciles with his brothers, he says to them, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. So bring it about that many people should be kept alive. So even the the bad things in this world, in history, God can work for good. He is still in control. And perhaps even in these moments, he is seeking to strengthen us. He allows these things to make us stronger in him and to see his power. That's what Paul discovered in 2 Corinthians 12. He, we read about this thing called the thorn in the flesh. He, he's desperately asking God to take this away from him. But God says, I'm going to keep it because, he says, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. I want you to learn to depend on me even more to see what I'm like. And ultimately we see how God works bad things for good, best of all in the story of Jesus himself. I've been thinking through the gospel in the last few weeks and just how beautiful it is in the context of Colossians. This verse tells us that Jesus is before all things, that he created everything, that he willed us and everything around us into existence. And as we saw a couple of weeks ago, this was because of his love. God is a God of community, the Trinity, and there is joy within God and that Uh, Creation is the overflow of that joy. He he wants to celebrate that. He wants us to enjoy it too. He makes us to live with him and for him. He wants to offer himself to us. That's why he makes us. And that shows the tragedy of sin. He offers himself to us, but then we reject him. He gives us dominion over his creation to look after it, but then we stuff it up. We, We break the egg. We turn against him. We ignore him and defy him. So the world falls apart in a sense and yet Jesus still sustains it. He still holds it up. He prevents it falling into total chaos and then he steps into the world to restore it, to rescue it. That's what Jesus did. Jesus, the creator, 
stepped into his creation to reconcile us to him and to repair things, to hold it all together. And yet in doing that, he had to fall apart. I mean, you just think of that moment where Jesus is dying on the cross. We're told in Matthew's gospel that even though it was the middle of the day, the sky turned dark, pitch black. We're told that the earth quaked, that the stones trembled, that there was all of these. It, it felt like creation was falling apart because here was the creation destroying the creator. Jesus had come near, the creator had come near, and not only were we defying him, we were destroying him. In that moment, it would have seemed like everything had fallen into nothing. The cosmos had turned to chaos. But still Jesus was sustained. He was sustained through death and rose again. See, he was carrying our sin. He had no sin, and so death could not hold him down, and he rose again. And as he rose, he renewed all things. And he offers us life with him, a new life with him. If we will come and acknowledge our need for him, if we stop trying to be self-sufficient, if we stop defying him and trying to walk our own way, if we stop trying to be self-sufficient in a religious way, trying to earn our way to God, if we're willing to stop all of that and allow him to sustain us, we allow him to make us acceptable in God's sight. If we trust him, then we can have life with him forever. So if you're not a Christian, if you're here tonight, it's awesome to have you with us. Make tonight the time where you come back to your creator. He loves what he's created and so he loves you and he knows what's best for you. As one writer puts it, since he's the creator who holds all things together, he knows how to best fix and order our lives. Maybe your life feels chaotic, maybe it feels broken, disappointing, it's not what you want it to be. Jesus, the sustainer, offers to put it all back together. And maybe you are here and you are a Christian. Maybe you've been a Christian for ages. So let me say, are you living in dependence on Jesus every day? For your material good, but also your spiritual good. Are you slipping into self-sufficiency or are you constantly reminding yourself that you need Jesus? You need your creator to be near to you. I saw a great quote from John Piper the other day. All the planets of your life, your commitments and beliefs, your aspirations and dreams, your attitudes and convictions, your habits and disciplines, your solitude and relationships, your labour and leisure, your thinking and feeling, all the planets of your life are held in orbit by the greatness and gravity and blazing brightness of the supremacy of Jesus Christ at the centre of your life. If you're a Christian, you have all of these things in your life, these planets, they're orbiting around, they need to be centred on Jesus. But, he warns, if, he see, if Jesus ceases to be the bright, blazing, satisfying beauty at the centre of your life, the planets will fly into confusion and a hundred things will be out of control. And sooner or later they will crash into destruction. 
So is Jesus at the centre of your life still? Are you allowing him to sustain you? He's before all things, and in him all things hold together, and he can hold us together. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for what we're learning about you in this letter, in these passages. We honour and acknowledge you as our creator. We thank you for the way that you have made us. We honour you and worship you as God himself. And we come to you recognising that we need you to sustain us. We thank you, Lord God, that you are currently at work in this place, in our bodies, in our minds, keeping us together. In you, all things hold together. So, Lord, may you hold our lives together. May we order our lives, our passions, our purposes, our plans, our, our dreams. May they all be held together by you. We were made for you to live with you. So may we live with you. May we truly come to you for strength every day. Hold us up for your glory. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.